Greetings and welcome. My name is Mike Bankhead. I am your host. I am a bass player and songwriter from the Jam City, Dayton, Ohio. I have a jack of all trades on this episode. Well, a Tim of all trades. Tim Minichi is a musician, a podcaster, and an author. And we talk about all of those things. He has a couple of books out, and I think that if you like science fiction and dystopian stuff, you'd totally like them. First, we start talking about music on the You Could Be My Aramis podcast, specifically a local band that he was in and some other local musicians, and uh, then we go other places. Here it comes. People call you Tim. Yes. That was a Monty Python reference. Uh, I feel like you might not have gotten that one. Now I feel bad. It's been a long time since I've seen Monty Python. I mean, it's probably high school since oh. I've watched Monty Python. Well, let's not talk about how long ago that was. Uh, how oh, about, that was a long time ago. How about, uh, I'll let you introduce yourself to my listeners, which are not nearly as numerous as your listeners, but someday I hope that they will be. Um, my name is uh, Tim Minichi, uh, rhymes with uh, Fettuccini, and uh, I'm a, a podcaster writer, musician, baker, gardener, uh, whatever other errs you'd like to uh, attach to my name. That's I do them all in Columbus, all right. Ohio. We're going to talk about as many of those things as we can, depending okay. on how much time that you have available to spend with me today. Uh, this is a, mostly a musician podcast, not all, but most like 90% of my guests are musicians. So we'll start with that one. Uh, what do you play? How long have you played it? All that good stuff. Well, I started playing guitar in college and I should have picked it up earlier because my dad was a guitarist in a garage band in the 60s and he never bothered to show me how to play guitar when I was growing up. So I didn't pick up a guitar until college, you know, in the, in the early 90s. Um, I still play a little guitar, bass. I played bass in a band for 10 years. Now I mostly mess around with uh, synths, um, pianos and and stuff making weird ambient electronic music for band camp that i throw up every once in a while uh it's 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 very much just me tooling around in garage band making weird noises and then putting them up you know to see if anybody cares but that's about it as far as music goes the band you were in for 10 years what are they called they were called the stepford five how many records did you guys put out we put out three albums and an ep I have seen that band a long time ago, and and I think we've talked about this via email or chat or something, and we, back in the day, I was at a lot of shows where you were either on the bill or probably there because the bands playing were bands that you had played with, and I never ran into you, and it's just weird that we've probably been in the same space a dozen times and uh, never managed to meet face-to-face. We played the Dayton area quite a few times. We played a venue called The Trolley Stop. Um, we played, we played some weird venues though, too. We played like a, a restaurant, you know, cause you, when you're a band just starting out or, or touring locally, you're just trying to play anywhere that people will have you. Um, we played a couple other places. We used to play, we played with a band called Captain of Industry, which was from Dayton. Oh yeah. They are much beloved. And the guys from that band that are still around are still good friends of mine. And I'm I'm trying to remember some of the other. Chris McCoy was from Dayton. Uh, he was a singer songwriter in the vein of like I, he looked like Britt Daniel from from Spoon, but he sang like Jeff Buckley. And he had a band called Chris McCoy and the Gospel. 
that was pretty good. I think they put out one record and he used to come down here and play acoustic shows all the time in Columbus. And he was, he was interesting dude. Uh, and I can't remember some of the other places, but we, yeah, we played in Dayton quite a few times because it's, it's a quick drive, you know, and it's, uh, it's a good launching point for the weekend. So like a local band like us, on a Friday, we play Dayton, and then on a Saturday, we play Indianapolis, or yeah. we play Louisville, or we do something like that, and then we come home on Sunday. So that was like a good launching point to play a second night on, on Saturday somewhere else. Some of the uh, your peers at the time, who you probably played a lot Pretty Mighty Mighty, didn't you? Oh, well, we didn't play with them a ton, and we played with a couple times. They were already established while we were starting out, and we none of us were from Columbus, so we were kind of the outsiders. Ah. Um, we became friends with them because we recorded at their studio workbook. Um, Neil, the drummer, and John Chin, the singer-guitarist, started a studio, first in their house, then they moved into an actual building, and it was, it was there for about 15 years. I just want to apologize if my dog barks because he's right next to me. No, that makes you and, sound real. Don't worry about it. And anytime a, a person delivers something in the neighborhood and they, you know, they honk that horn, he goes crazy. But anyway, uh, John and Neil were great guys. I mean, they are, they're still, they're still around, but they're doing different things now. But we spent a lot of time in the studio with them. And that's how we really got to know those guys. And, and, and then they, you know, we ended up playing a couple shows with them, but they were kind of like, when we started out, they were kind of out of our league in, uh, in a lot of ways. I loved that yeah. band. I saw them a lot. One of my favorite bands of all time, uh, Famous Past Lives. Great if I record. see a used copy of it, I pick it up and then I give it to somebody so that I can keep spreading the gospel of a Pretty Muddy Muddy around. This is a good segue. I was also going to talk about Go Robot Go and, mm -hmm. oh, there's, uh, oh, there's another Columbus band, uh, Copaz. There's another mm -hmm. Columbus band I yep. really like, but I... <laughs> It started with an M. What's the M band that was really good? Um, uh, there were a lot, but uh, so I liked Cope has a lot. Their first record, I think it's called Starboard Rail. Yes, is, I have it. It's really good. Um, and the stuff that they did after that, it's still good, but they just, I think they did them all like MP3s. They didn't do a lot of physical um, pressings for the later records. Um, and then Sean Gardner, who was the guitar player in that band, also had a band called DeNovo. Yes, I have. I have really their good. seven inch. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have a vinyl seven inch from Denovo. Actually, I, before we started recording, I talked about the show I went to this past weekend. Sean's in Minnows. So okay, yeah, he's been in a bunch of bands, and um, every time I run into him, I'm like, you got to have Denovo demos laying around for other songs. I mean, we played with them probably five or six times. We played with them in Columbus, and then like we would randomly get on a bill somewhere, and then they would end up being on the bill. <laughs> like we played Cincinnati and then they ended up on our bill with us. And we were like, sweet, you know, cause we love those guys. And, um, but we, they would play all these amazing songs and then none of them were recorded. And we're like, you got to have some songs on the, in the, you know, on the hard drive somewhere, put them out, just throw them on Bandcamp or something. And uh, they've never seen the light of day. So I've always been disappointed that all we have really is like a seven inch and maybe like a song on a compilation here or there. Cause they're really one of those bands that, Unless you were in the scene, you you probably wouldn't know who they are, but right. they're really, really good. Really good. Uh, Miranda Sound. That's the Miranda that I'm right. And those were buddies of ours from college. We, uh, Billy, Dan, and Sean went to college with Jay, our guitarist, and Keith, our lead singer, in Bowling Green. Um, in fact, D uh, Dan um, and his brother Josh 
were in a band with Keith called 10 Forward in Bowling Green. And they, you know, it was a scrappy indie rock band, very, very much influenced by 90s alternative music. Like some of the stuff sounded like a little bit of um, Matthew Sweet, because Dan has that like really poppy, catchy vocal sound. And then um, some of it was a little more angular guitar stuff, because that was what like Keith was listening to, like Jawbox and, and that kind of stuff. And 10 Forward existed for like a couple years in college. And then because Billy was a little younger, it didn't continue when Keith left. And then when they, when they, all of us ended up down here for different reasons. And that's when Miranda Sound came together. And, and we were recording at Workbook. Basically, like when we were at Workbook, Miranda Sound was doing something. And then when we were done, Miranda Sound would go in and they would do a record. And we were kind of alternating for like three or four years doing records opposite of each other. And it was a lot of fun. And we did a tour of the East Coast together when their, um, I think it was their second record came out. And that was a lot of fun. It was very, very much not a um, financially successful tour. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I can imagine. I I love, first of all, I loved all those bands from Columbus. And when I had the energy, you know, we talked about this before I hit record, I would go to Columbus and see shows and I wish I could do it more often. That I just kind of like that sound. And mm-hmm. obviously you and Jay like that sound because you have a podcast where you talk about it. Yep. That's a segue. In fact, you did an episode on uh, Famous Past Lives on that podcast, I believe. Yep. Did you not? Yes, uh, we did. We had John on for that. And he was, a, I think he had a, a, a raspy voice at that time. He was a little under the weather. But I was glad to get to dig into that record because, you know, they were a band that a lot of people in the scene looked up to because they were so musical in terms of you could hear influences, but they were really a unique band because they had a violinist who was playing through distortion pedals and loops, you know, it was a completely like original sound in that respect. And you could, you know, they named their band after a Bob Mold solo record. So you could hear the, the Husker Du sugar Bob Mold influence in John's vocals. But then there was all this other stuff going on, the angular guitar work. Uh, Neil was a fantastic drummer. And really, you know, understood how to use space in his drumming. And I just I just loved everything about that band. And I actually, when we put out our third record, we started a record label with the guys from Miranda Sound called Reverbose. It was actually a fake label that they created when we did our tour together in 2002. We wanted it to look like we were from we had a record label that was calling these venues on the East coast. So like I would call like the continental in New York city because you weren't, you know, there, there wasn't like this whole like social media thing happening. You had to actually call venues in order to like get booked. So I would call the continental. I'll be like, Hey, this is Tim from Reverbose records. We've got some bands out with new records this spring. Uh, we'd like to book a, a tour and we'd like to book at the continental. Just totally BSing our way into these shows that we had no business, you know, being on. But then years later, we turned it into a real real record label. And the first thing we did was put out John Chin's solo record, um, which is fantastic. Um, I wish I wish the vinyl revival had happened because it's a perfect record to put on vinyl. But John just kind of laughs me off whenever I say, we should do a release on vinyl. He's like, what, for five people? I'm like, John, come on, just for me. Let's just do one copy on vinyl. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's something that can be done. So- yes. 
if people are still listening because we've been super nerdy about something super mm-hmm. local, which I love, but one thing that I hope you listeners notice is how much Tim cares about music and how passionate he is. And these are the kind of people I like to talk to. So this is where you get to talk about your podcast and what it's called and what it's about and and the kind of person that's really going to love it. Well, the person that's going to love it is going to be probably like you and me. Um, they're probably going to have lived through the 90s in either as a youngster or maybe as someone who was in college or just out, out of college and really enjoyed that music of the 90s, especially the stuff that maybe you were watching 120 Minutes at Midnight or Alternative Nation and you were seeing some bands that weren't on during the day. Those are our sweet spot is is rediscovering or or finding under underappreciated or overlooked bands that weren't on necessarily, you know, heavy rotation on MTV or radio. And we dig back into those records. And it started out with really me and Jay just being bored after our band broke up. Actually, I should alter that after our band decided not to practice anymore and just stopped showing up at the practice space. <laughs> um we were we were hanging out in his he had an office in his house when he lived here in Columbus and he had all these CDs and boxes and I started going through them one day and I was like oh man I don't even remember what this sound like what is this and what is this and what is this and I got the idea like we should do a podcast where we just have a beer and listen to a record and that's the podcast and we just revisit these records in like 5 or 10 minutes a year after that they turned into hour long episodes where we're interviewing musicians and and Chip Midnight, who was a part of the Columbus music scene as a writer, started doing some interviews for us because we didn't have any connections. And he was a guy who had done a lot of interviews. Um, And then full circle, he came back after being away for a long time and started doing interviews for us again last year. Um, And we just like to talk about these old, you know, old records because they're 25, 30 years old now um, that we think are cool, that were maybe outside of the 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 story of the 90s is you know grunge the death of hair metal and then new metal and and this sort of stuff and like but there's a much bigger story to be told about what the 90s were in terms of music and so we try to get into that every week and we've been doing that for 630 something episodes since 2011 which is outstanding your latest episode is 639 yes um well jay and i like to say you know, we showed up for band practice every Thursday for 10 years. So this is just a continuation of us showing up every week together. Like we, we've we literally spent one day a week every, every day since like 1999. <laughs> and that's how, our, that's how our friendship works. Like it's, it's and it, we both are music nerds. We both have been in recording studios. So we understand like the weird nuances of how a record gets made. And we're both fascinated by music and, and how different people can make different sounds and create stuff that continues to blow our mind, whether we heard it, you know, for the first time today or we heard it 30 years ago and we're rediscovering it. You know, there's just there's so many avenues to listening to music that I think like so many people get caught up in what's new. And I'm like, well, hey, if you've never heard it before, it's new, whether it came out in 1965 or in 2023 it's, absolutely. it's new if you haven't heard it absolutely we have not yet said the name of the podcast i'll let dig you dig me that. out sorry dig me out podcast it's named after the sleater kinney album which you have not covered 
we did so the the joke is we won't do that album until it's the last episode so hopefully you'll never do that album because i don't want to think that there's going to be a last episode well we well at some point we have to pass the torch to our children but uh we did get around that because there was a 33 and a third book which is the the book series by bloomsbury where they it's about 100 pages per book going in depth on one record um and a lot of people like annie zaleski uh, who's a friend she did of the, the show? She did the Duran Duran book. Yep, and it's Hold up, she's a friend of the book. show. She's really cool. She's been on the show. She hasn't been on recently because she's been so busy writing books. Yeah. She's she's got the Lady Gaga book that just came out. She did the Duran Duran Rio book last year. Um, she's been so busy that we haven't been able to have her on. But she was she was on for another a number of episodes years ago, and that's a prime example. Like you just take one book, or, or excuse me, one album. And you figure out an angle to talk about it. And uh, there was a writer who, who's a college professor who wrote about Sleater Kinney's Dig Me Out from both a historical, like how this record was made, but also like, how does this fit into the riot girl scene of the 1990s? How does this fit into the um, zine uh, scene that existed in the 90s, 80s and 90s with regards to you know, band coverage and bands discovering each other. That was a really big, important thing in the 90s. And uh, so we had her on to talk about her book while avoiding talking about the actual record <laughs> so that we didn't violate our end of podcast rule. So that was our sneaky way of talking about it. But yeah, we, uh, we, I was looking for a name for the podcast and I was like, the rock and roll podcast? Like, what's, what are we going to name this podcast? And I was like, well, we're, we're sort of, we're taking old records out of our collection that we haven't listened to in a long time. How would we do that? We would dig them out. And I'm like, wait a minute, dig me out. Dig, dig. And then I went through my like record collection. I was like, perfect. We're, we're stealing this and they haven't sued us yet. So I think we're good after 11 or 12 or 13 years or whatever it's been. Well, they're very nice. I don't, I don't think yes. they would. That's still my favorite Sleater Kenny record. And I'm mm -hmm. pretty sure I have all of them, even the newer ones. Yes. And I, I would say that not the last one, which I did like, but is very different. The one before that, the reunion record is really, really, really good. And I would put it up in like the top two or three. This it's this and when it has city in the title. Uh, no so, cities, no cities to love. There yes. are no cities, no cities to love. Uh, my wife and I saw them in that tour at the Newport Music Hall and they were great. And um, yep. that was my second time seeing them. I actually saw them on the all hands for the bad one tour in Cincinnati, a regional band from Detroit called the white stripes opened that show. Yeah. Before anyone knew who they were. And after they got done playing the white stripes sat off by the side of the stage and nobody talked to them. And I tell people, man, if I knew they were going to blow up, I would have made friends. People don't understand outside of our area, like bands like the white stripes and the black uh, keys were often playing in these tiny venues all over the state and area long before they were famous. And they were just sort of a curiosity. Like they were open yeah. for people. And, and now I mean, they're I, two of the biggest bands. And I was like, there to see Sleater Kenny and look, I'm a bass player. So when a two piece comes on the stage with no bass, I'm like, come on. I mean, <laughs> now Sleater Kenny also no bass, but you know, Corn plays bass lines on her guitar sometimes, but like, right. I didn't know we were going to have an entire bass for evening. I thought we would just have one band with no bass. Um, Seems like the 2000s were very anti-bass. 
in, in at the beginning with all these with the two piece bands that, that did not like their bass players to be uh, in the band. I don't know what I don't know what bass players did to deserve such, uh, you know, scorn. But it I, happened. I think of Local H who exactly. have some albums that would qualify for your podcast. They put up, I think they have three in the 90s. Well, we've done Pack Up the Cats. That's a great record. Uh, we did that one. That was a suggested review from uh, Dewey Cole, who's a monster local H fan. And and he's a, he's a guy who records shows. Like he has like the microphones that he takes to shows. And he has to have recorded like hundreds of local H shows. Um, and then we actually talked to Scott Lucas on an episode separate from that. And he's an interesting dude. I mean, that's a lifer right there. That, the is. fact that they have an album called, called Lifers. Lifers. That's very appropriate because that dude stays in the game. Road dog. He is a road dog. He is committed and he's awesome for that because that's he a is. hard life to live. And having seen them a few times, he sells the merch personally. Mm-hmm. He'll talk to everyone that wants to talk to him. He'll sign the audit. He's... He's everything you want out of someone. If you're a fan, he's everything you want out of the band you came to see. Yeah, he can be intense, but oh, yeah, I, I chalk that up for as passion. But I th- I think that can sometimes <laughs> rub people the wrong way because I know in his younger years there were definitely people who were like, "What is up with this dude? Why is he so angry?" And uh, you know, they were the they were the band out of Chicago. Even though they're not from Chicago, they're from Zion. Zion. But they were labeled as a Chicago band, and they were kind of like the second wave of bands out of Chicago to get popular, like and, after Veruca Salt and the Pumpkins. And yep, and I feel like that was maybe a chip on their shoulder at the beginning, and then them not having a bass player making people, you know, crick their eyes at them, like, "What is this going on? Why isn't there no bass player?" But like to watch him explain, I've seen videos of him explaining how his guitar setup works. He's got this crazy like extra pickup and he uses different gauge strings on his on his lower strings to get the bass tone. And I mean, that's dedication. You also can't easily swap out guitars. No, no, <laughs> that's that is a, a whole nother level of of um, gear nerdum. Here's the I mean, they're still making records and I don't mm-hmm. know if you've listened to the last couple, but they're still good. Yep. Like that dude can write songs like he can he he is a really good songwriter yeah and i i i don't know i think i've i've listened to everything um that they've put out in terms of like the newer stuff but i think the thing that i i like about him as a songwriter is that he's able to play within the rock genre but Sometimes the songs are a little bit stoner rock. Sometimes the songs are a little bit more punk hardcore. Like there's elements of a lot of different sounds, but it always sounds like him. And that's something I appreciate is like when you can find a personality for your band and for your and for your overall aesthetic as a as a musician, but still incorporate little bits and pieces from other genres and other subgenres and always tie it together because not, nothing bothers me more is when you can clearly hear a band was like, this song is going to be this kind of band. And it's like, yeah, but it doesn't sound like the other songs that you wrote. You're just writing 12 different songs. Where, what is your band? And, um, he, you know, every time you hear that a Local H album, it sounds like Local H, but he's always innovating a little bit, which is cool. 
I don't think he'll ever do like a straight up like electronic record. Probably he'll not go that far. But there's always a twist in his songwriting and his guitar playing and arrangements that are really really interesting. And I think you can learn a lot about him as a writer from the covers he chooses and that they do mm-hmm. right. They they're they're well known for covering Britney Spears' "Toxic," which mm-hmm. obviously she didn't write, but. Look, a pop factory wrote it so that speaks to his pop sensibility they cover when doves cry they cover smothered by hugs by dayton heroes guided by voices mm-hmm. they cover rocket in the free world by neil young those are all really hooky songs and they do them kind of in their own unique local he style which, yep yeah I, I i like those guys i like those guys a lot since you're in dayton uh do you get to check out uh bob's uh uh playhouse his his beer factory down there or i have not uh, been (laughs) you know you know what's funny this is a last night i played an open mic and one of one of the folks that came out to see it had actually ran into bob in the middle of the afternoon yesterday and uh i had talked to him and they both i mean this gentleman had way too many beers he was like I'm not used to getting drunk at four in the afternoon. And I'm like, well, you probably shouldn't have spent a couple hours with Bob then at a bar. <laughs> yeah. The, the stories are absolutely like I've read, you know, there'll be a piece for like spin or, or some magazine where somebody will go to like cover them. And this was back in the day. And the amount of beer drinking that takes place is just unbelievable. I don't know how he, his liver has to be just completely calcified. I, I don't understand how he does it, uh, but God bless him because he is a, truly one of the most unique people that has ever existed in, in the music industry. And, and I, the, I hesitate to say music keep, industry because yeah. <laughs> he's not even really a part of it. The songs keep coming. Like they put out yep. three records last year and one of them was in my top 10 favorite albums of the year. It's like, it'd be different if they were making music that wasn't good or catchy. Mm-hmm. Um, they make so much of it. I can't even keep up. Like no, it's impossible. I, I and I have you know those albums from the '90s. Obviously, I'm very fond of, and I remember all those songs. But like, I'll listen to one of the new ones, and I'll be like, "Oh yeah, there's like five of these that would be right in the, right in the catalog with the great ones." But then another record's out in two months, and I don't have time to, to really absorb the songs, which is kind of a bummer. I just love that it's such a self-sufficient operation. Yeah, you know, he's making the albums, he's doing the artwork. It, it's just everything is him and it's truly a DIY like perfect encapsulation of do it yourself, do it the way you want to do it. And if you do it enough times and you do it well, people will come to you and find you. And yes, that's all you can ask for exemplary. We've gone like over 30 minutes. And we haven't talked about your book yet. And oh, okay. So in addition to being a, a, former rock star and uh, <laughs> current podcast hosting star because that's not enough art and creative expression for you. Now you write books and I have read two of your books. You've, you've made two books, but I'm sure there's more coming and I don't want to give away the plot, but uh, people cannot read the second book and not have read the first because they won't understand what's going on. So you got to start with, with both books, but I, I want you to talk about your books because I like them. And I think if you like science fiction or intrigue, or ex-military saving the world kind of stories or dystopia, you will like Tim's book. Yes. So this is when you get to talk about your books. Okay. So 
Uh, I have two fiction books. There's a couple of nonfiction books that are irrelevant to this conversation because they're just like sort of personal things that I like a short story book and that kind of thing and and book about the band that I was in that it was just basically for me to collect all my thoughts and and uh, not forget things. But the, the, the two fiction books are part of a series. The first one was called The Black Sky. It came out in 2020. It's a post-apocalyptic dystopian story about the world after an asteroid and it's 10 years later and the world is kind of rebuilding but there is a micro story and a, and a macro story of survival and uh you know a couple separated and they have to they, they, this the the guy who's ex-military has to do a task in order to reunite with his with his wife and there's intrigue and and double crosses and and it was uh it was inspired by movies like Escape from New York, uh, which is a John Carpenter film from the late seventies. I'm not a big fan of Cormac McCarthy, but The Road was an influence more like what I didn't like about it. I tried to do in the stuff that I wanted to see in the The Road that I didn't see. But if you were into like post apocalyptic, you know that doesn't involve zombies, you, you might be interested in that. And then the second book is a continuation. It's a year later and the stakes get bigger. Um, it turns into a war or, or, or a potential war between factions of um, at, on a bigger scale. Uh, and it, both books, I would say, resolve in a way, but then also leave things open in a way. And I like uh, movies and books that, that do that, that so that you know, at the end of Inception, is the top going to fall? I don't know. Wait till Inception 2, Inceptioning. I don't, you know, uh, I like that aspect of, of, of storytelling. So, and I'm always interested in writing something, whether it's through my books or when I write short stories, I just want to write something that I haven't read or, or seen before. So I will take maybe an existing idea and then put my own twist on it and, um, it wasn't something I intended. To, I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to be an author. But when the band was over, I wrote a screenplay about being in a band because I was like, well, I got no creative outlet now. What am I going to do? And it was really bad, as most people's first screen, screenplays are. Um, so I stuck it in a drawer and I kept writing screenplays. I kept writing stuff because my cousin was at the time an intern for a Hollywood producer and he was giving me scripts to read because he knew I read a lot of books. And he's like, why don't you read these and give me some feedback and I'll read your screenplays and I'll give you feedback. So we were exchanging these things over the internet, like emailing each other. And I wrote a, a, a very basic outline for what would be the Black Sky as a movie. And I put that in a, in a drawer and then I revisited it and I went, maybe this would make a book. Maybe I should try this out as a book. And that started like in... 2011 and then in 2012 my daughter was born so i put it back into the sh into the drawer and then in 2016 after she was you know four years old and was able to walk and not in diapers anymore and i wasn't you know a helicopter parent at that point i said maybe i'm gonna i'm gonna think i'm gonna try to take another shot at that idea that i had for that book so i spent like a, a year or two, just fleshing out the idea, writing out ideas, how to finish it. And because I didn't really have an ending when I started, which is a, a death sentence when you're trying to write a book or a, or a movie. If you don't know the ending at the same time, you know, the beginning, you're just going to write forever. and You're never going to finish it. So I had to figure out the ending. And once I had the beginning and the ending, 
I literally took a giant sheet of butcher block paper and wrote it out as a timeline with all the points of where the story needed to go and where the characters needed to be. Because there's no really one way to write a book. You know, some people write, some authors write based on, uh, they do a spreadsheet. Some use like post-it notes. Some just fly by the seat of their pants because they're really good. Um, and so I, I wrote this thing out and I kept giving them to my wife and saying, does this, does this suck or is this getting better? And she'd be like, punch up your, your characters a little bland. Try adding some more to like this. Like she, my wife reads three, four books a month. So she is a reader. She understands a lot of character development in books because she doesn't tend to read stuff that I read. She tends to read more character-driven stuff. Whereas I like stuff that's a little bit more plot-driven which sci-fi and fantasy can be that because you've got like magic systems and you've got other worlds that you have to set up. So she was giving me a lot of character feedback. And so I tried to keep fleshing out characters, fleshing out characters. And then finally around 2019, I was like, I think I have a book. So I just gave it to friends and, and everybody. Most of the problems were with grammar because you don't catch your own grammar mistakes. And then eventually just, I put, I printed it or, not, or I published it myself right when COVID came and happened. So that was fun. Oops. Uh, yeah. So yeah, August of 2020, I, uh, I published, I self-published and um, got good feedback. You know, it's got a good, you know, good reads and Amazon score. So I decided, hey, I, I have an idea for the second book. I guess I'll go ahead and write that. And then that took me a while. I wrote like four different beginnings of that book. And I wasn't really sure what, what, what I was happy with. And then I finally uh, nailed it with what I was happy with and, and was like, okay, now I can move forward. And it only took me like six months to actually write the book as opposed to the like five years it took to write the first one. But that was like really sitting down and like pounding out a thousand, 2000 words every other day, which um, I'd never done before. Like my, my goal during the first book was 500 words a day, 500 words a day. If I don't write 500 words, you know, I, I, discipline my slap myself across the face like you can do 500 words it's not that hard and um so the second book i tried to amp that up and i did that so it ended up being a slightly shorter book but i it's a way more complex book because there's multiple storylines happening it, at the same it, time there's a lot going on there's a lot going on i was i was trusting that the reader would i i tried to help out by including like at the beginning of chapters, like this is where we are in the story with regards to location and date. Hopefully that will help you uh, stay in, in, in the story in terms and not make you have to go back and check things and, and stuff like that. Um, but I've read a like Neil Stevenson, uh, which he writes like insanely long books. So I was, I was okay. People, I figured people would be okay. Yeah. Did you read Seven Eves? That's the last Neil yes. Stevenson book. Oh, that's so good. Love that. And it didn't go anywhere near where I thought it was going to go <laughs> for like the first three fourths of the, the book. Right. Like yes. the only part that has anything to do with the title is the end. Mm hmm. I don't yep. even know. All right. So I'm not an author. I don't know how you people do this. How do you even come up with plot? Two in one question. How in the world do you do you think about the plot? And are you concerned that the FBI might look at your search history as you research <laughs> some of the things that you have to research to write about in the book? Uh, I'll answer the second question first. Yes, because when I was writing The Black Sky, I was working in an office at the time. I work from home now. 
But a lot of that was me on my lunch break on my office computer going, what's an, what's the most effective bomb for, and I was like, man, I could get a lot of trouble. If somebody looks at my search history, I'm looking up gun types, like all these, like what's the best sniper rifle for distance, all these things. <laughs> I'm just like, I know I'm going to be in trouble. Um, now, I haven't mentioned this, but on top of all the things that I do, I have a 40 hour a week job. I have a kid. I write books. I make music. I do the podcast. I'm also the assistant to three professional writers. Um, it's sort of my side gig. Uh, I started with, uh, there's an author named Cameron Hurley who actually lives in the Dayton area. And she's written a bunch of sci-fi and fantasy books. And she needed an assistant. And I was a fan of hers. And I reached out over social media and said, do you want, okay, do you, I would do this. So she, I've been working with her for a couple of years. And then I added a couple other ones, Mer Lafferty, who writes um, science fiction books and Ursula Vernon, who writes under the uh, pen name T Kingfisher. And she writes horror and, and fantasy and science fiction. And I've talked to them both just personally. And then also when I've, I co-produce Cameron's podcast and Mer has a long running podcast called I should be writing, which is a great podcast for anybody who wants to write. It's been around for 15 years. She's in the podcasting hall of fame. A lot of writers take existing ideas and twist them. That's how they get, they go, that's an interesting idea, but I think they have the wrong take. I'm going to put my own take on it. So you can take something as, as simple as like, I'm watching the edge of tomorrow, the, the really good Tom Cruise movie that kind of went under the radar, but I have a different take on it. And that's what I'm going to write. And that's how people come up with ideas a lot of the time. I mean, there are some people like, like a Neil Stevenson or like a Brandon Sanderson or, you know, these type of writers who are very successful and they have their own worlds that are built. So they don't have to necessarily like look for those ideas, but a lot of writers are taking existing concepts and, and twisting them and turning them and, or they read a book and they were disappointed. Like I can do that better let me take a shot. So I'm actually, I'm working on a book now that is like a combination of, I wanted to write a, a twist on the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You know, it's the famous Douglas Adams book. And I was like, I think I have a different idea for the concept of what's happening in this book. Um, so I'm not going to get into that because I'm still in the middle of like writing it, fleshing it out. But that's where a lot of plot comes from for, for professional writers is it's not this thing like you have to grab it out of thin air. Sometimes it's just a matter of having a note on your phone and you see something and you write it down in there and you're like, hmm, that would make it, maybe that's, a, that's the beginning of something. And then you go back to it like a week later and you're like, oh, I have another idea for that. And you just keep compiling little ideas and eventually it becomes something. That sounds so like it, songwriting, actually. It is. It's influence. It's things you hear in the ether or read or whatever. It's not as complicated as necessarily building from ground zero so that's and that's what i've learned i mean from pros that they're not necessarily sitting there staring at the ceiling going what's my next idea what's my next idea a lot of them have four or five ideas in their drafts that are just like two or three sentences because they saw something somewhere a year ago and then they went back to it and go yeah i'm still interested in this i'm going to do that so and, and it can come from anywhere and Really, the hardest part about writing, um, I, all of those will say this, is just doing it every day. Just going back to it and doing it every day. 
Cause so many people will get like a thousand or 10,000 words even into a book and then just be like, I don't know. <laughs> and they'll stop. And so if you can just push through your doubts, you will, you will get there. And it, it's going to suck the first time. I had to do so many drafts to get to where I was even like moderately happy with what I was doing. And um, yeah, you just, you just refine and, you know, it's like writing a song, like, Oh, this bridge isn't working for me. What if I tried doing this? Uh, what if we did this breakdown is what if, what if we didn't even have a, what if we don't even go to the chorus after the first pre-chorus? What if we go back to the verse and then do the, chorus the second time through or what if we start with the chorus like aerosmith does all the time you know there's so many different ways you can play with it in a three minute song four minute song whatever you can do that when you're arranging a plot for a book or or characters you can be inspired by a character and say well what if i did the opposite with this character like this character is very good and virtuous what if i took that same kind of character and flipped them or gender swapped them or made him an alien or uh, some sort of sentient plant you know there's it's you can always start with a kernel of an idea that already exists as long as you manipulate it in a way that is completely unrecognizable i stole the idea of the asteroid in the black sky from the west wing there's an episode of the west wing called impact winner where it's a subplot in the story but basically president bartlett is dealing with the fact that there is an asteroid potentially heading towards earth it's millions of miles off but they're game planning for like what would happen and they have a scientist in there and he's like well here's a scenario if if a asteroid were to hit russia based on our you know game planning and all these all these sorts of data that we have so much dust and debris and ash would be kicked up it would literally turn the sky black for a year all the crops would die and people would, you know, starve and it would be mass death across the planet. It doesn't happen. It's just a scenario that they're talking about for one scene on an episode of The West Wing. And I, that stuck with me for like years. And I was like, that's a cool idea. But what's the story? How can I make that into a story? And then I was like, escape from New York. He has to go into New York to save one person and then get out. What if I reverse engineered that and said, he's in New York. And he has to go out and then go back into New York after this asteroid is like, so I started just compiling parts. It's like, it's like assembling an Ikea furniture from, from pieces that don't belong together. And you're like, well, I guess I have a piece of furniture now that kind of works. So it's not always a blank page. Sometimes it's chunks and pieces from other things. And then you finally get something that sort of makes sense. I, again, me being like plot driven, like I will watch a movie like Mad Max Fury Road, which has almost no dialogue and is one of my favorite movies. And it is entirely plot driven. But within that plot, you reveal character motivation. You reveal uh, all these things, backstory, history, even in the set design, there's little details. There's so much stuff that happens in that movie that's so perfect. And it has nothing to do with like, character in certain respects it just has to do with the plot moving the plot forward they're going to one place they turn around and they go back that's it that's that's mad max free road but it's a fantastic film and it's so deep and well thought out that um i watch it constantly I, I, that's the movie that i go to all the time when i want to feel inspiration i listen to that soundtrack regularly 
That's probably that and Brian Eno's uh, music for airports are probably my two most listened to albums. If I'm being completely honest, because I will put them on when I'm writing and find them very inspirational. So I've listened to Fa- fantastic planet by failure a hundred thousand times. Brian, Eno triples that. I assume that just like with music in order to create music and be a songwriter, you have to have listened to a lot of music and have that influence you. So if you're an author, I think that means you have to be a voracious reader. Is that true? To a certain degree, I'm a slow reader because I reread. I will read a book and then I'll go back and read a paragraph like analytically, like how did they construct that? Like that was such a good paragraph in the same way that like you'll listen to a song and then you'll go back and like listen to the baseline when you're a big music nerd and you're like, Oh, those are cool. That's, that's cool. What he's doing on the bass. So I will do the same thing to books, but unfortunately then it takes me like three times longer to finish the book than, than probably the average person, because I'm so caught up in like the, the, how it actually fits together and works. And I get bogged down by like word choices and structure and, and those kind of things. So I get a little, I get a little nerdy. Um, when I'm reading fiction, it happens less. I mean, when I'm reading nonfiction, like historical books, I read, you know, books about music because I'm a music fan. Um, and I tend to like rip through like music history books pretty quick. But when I'm reading, you know, sci-fi or fantasy or even stuff that's not like I love John Le Carrier, the the spy master uh, who wrote tons and tons of uh, books about Cold War spies and stuff. And I love just his use of language and how, you know, figuring out how he builds tension and dropping hints and foreshadowing and, and how he, you know, builds a character arc and all that kind of stuff. So I will sit there and read you know, like the spy who came in from the cold and just like take months because I'm just analyzing it and trying to unlock, unlock the secrets that he's built. Um, so it kind of depends. Sometimes I, I, like you mentioned seven eaves. I read that fast because I was any moment I had, I was picking that book up to read it. And that I was like, long. It, it's a long book and you, it's what, like 800 something pages. And it isn't until like, the 500th page or 600th page until you get to like the big reveal of like the, the second half of the book. Yeah. And it's why, entirely... it's called, why it's called what it's called. You don't it, even know this till like so late in the book. Exactly. So on that one, you know, I read it, I, I bought it. So I read it and then I went back and afterwards, cause I was enjoying it so much. And then I went back and I was like, okay, page one, how did he set this up? What was he doing? Because I also read books about writing books. Um, so I will see what they are saying in those, you know, books that are helping you figure out things. And then I'll apply it to something that I've read and go, oh, that was smart. Like, I can see how they hooked me there. Um, so I'm always thinking with two brains, like the creative side where I'm trying to steal people's magic and then the just the fan side of just loving, you know, whatever I'm reading or whatnot. So, yeah, I'm not a fan. So the answer to the question, I'm not a fast reader as, as much as I would like. To, I'd li- I would love to put down, you know, three books a month or, or read three books a month. But I'm when we're talking about three, four hundred page books, but I just can't I can't do it. I've tried most. I think I've done in a year is like twenty five books, which is about two a month. But that's. I get these little, I don't know if you've ever read these, these little 33 and a third books. 
Uh, no, but we talked about it because Annie uh, Annie Zelensky yes. just wrote one on uh, Duran Duran, but I have not I have not read any of those yet. See how small they are? Yeah, they're so small. So I can I can get through this in like two days because it's you know it's easy. Like throw it on a weekend. I'll like, you know, go out in the backyard and sit on the porch and I'll just rip through that in like two days and it'd be nothing, but not, not sci-fi and especially not stuff like Neil Stevenson and that kind of stuff. That's so heady and thick. That was my first Neil Stevenson experience, despite having seen his work referenced in other places. Mm -hmm. And that book was a bit much like I haven't. I generally like to reread books I enjoy. I haven't gone mm -hmm. back to that one yet because I'm like, I need to like steal myself to get ready for yes. a reread of that one. Well, my first exposure to him was Cryptonomicon because it has elements of World War II in it. And and um, Alan Turing, who did the, uh, you know, the crack the Enigma code. Yeah. So I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, I'm a, I'm a middle-aged dad. I like World War II stuff like I'm supposed to. And uh, it's way more than that. And it is a dense dense book and it was my first time reading him and i was like what have i gotten myself into with this book but i kept reading but i had to like put it down for periods of time and, and read something lighter because it was so heavy um not in like a dark way but it was just like his prose is just so uh it's very specific yeah it's a very specific style i i got that from as I was reading Seven Eves, I was thinking, I don't know that I've ever read anyone that writes like this. And yep. maybe that was a decent uh, entry point for me into his work. I know a lot of people started with Snow Crash. That's, That's like his... the famous one. Yes. But because I'm, I didn't start with that, I don't have that experience. So I don't, I, I've never read Snow Crash. It's on my like TBR, but uh, I'll get to it one day. <laughs> So let's talk about your influences. So many parallels, crazy between this and music. Um, sure, we all have musical influences. Who are some of your uh, science fiction touchstones as that, that you that you enjoy and that seep into your own work? Well, I tend to write what I consider fairly um, straightforward. Like I am not a someone who's being real tricky with language or structure. Um, my the first person I would mention is John Scalzi, who is a science fiction writer. From I Ohio. love that guy. <laughs> he, yes. he actually doesn't live too far from me. I really appreciate his style and his wit and his ability to craft a story that's both that can be thought provoking but very entertaining. Yeah. And um, that's. I mean, that's all I'm really looking for. I am not looking to be overwhelmed with big ideas every time. There's sometimes I'll reach for it and I'll go for, I want a big idea book and, or something that's super dense or complex. I'm just in the mood for that. But like when John puts out a book, I'm ready to read it. I, you know, when the, the recent ones, the interdependency series came out. So good. <laughs> so good. And I, you know, immediately when it came out, I was buying them and, and reading them. Same thing with his last book, the Kaiju Preservation Society. And that's, I think that's how I found out about Snow Crash, because he, okay. he mentions that book a couple of times. And I think the thing that works really well for him in terms of what I like is I can visualize everything. And I did the same thing when I was writing. Like, I was like, I need to see this in my head as well as have it on the page because I'm, I'm visual that way. 
like I, I know a lot of it, it t- that tends to be guys. I'm not, I'm not speaking out of turn here. Like guys tend to be visually oriented. So like if I'm reading a book and I can't visualize it, like if it's a super high end fantasy, I have a really hard time because I'm like, I don't understand what these creatures look like. I don't understand what this world looks like. This is very confusing to me. So I struggle with the fantasy aspect, which is why I tend to be more on the sci-fi end of things because I, I kind of have a visual encyclopedia based on science fiction movies to understand aspects i am admitting i am not the brain the brainiest person like i really admire people who can read like brandon sanderson or, or robert jordan or these like big fantasy epics because sometimes i'm just like overwhelmed by the amount of new information i have to process right away where i'm like i i just kind of want uh, 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 an like in the equivalent of a movie, like an hour and a half long action movie, <laughs> is is what my my goal is in in a lot of respects. Um, the other one so influences Andy Weir, um, who wrote The Martian. That book was a huge influence on me, both for the the book, which I think is great, but also how he wrote it, which was um, he didn't have a publisher. He was a guy who wrote short stories. He put up a chapter at a time for the for the Martian on his website and just said, hey, friends, I'm writing a book. Check out the new chapter. So I literally followed that and I would post on Facebook to my Facebook friends like I just posted a new here's a new chapter. It's at my website. If you want to download the PDF, you know, go there. And I would take immediate feedback from people when I was writing the first book, The Black Sky. And people would be like, oh, I'm curious to see where this character is going to go or uh, how this thread's going to play out. And I didn't necessarily change anything, but it just gave me a good idea. Like, Oh, that's working. Like people are interested in that. So I know I didn't make a mistake there. And, uh, Cameron Hurley, who I work for, so I'm, I'm kind of biased there, but the light brigade by Cameron Hurley is probably like top five, if not my favorite science fiction book of all time. Um, it sort of takes like, the time tra- travel conceit of, I don't know, uh, Star of Edge of Tomorrow, where there's like a loop, and then Starship Troopers. And the book or the movie? Because those are not the same the, thing. The movie. Okay. I've read the. I've started, Starship Troopers. The book is very disappointing. If you've I have seen not the read movie. it, the movie is camp, but it's delightful camp. It's it's camp, but it has a whole nother level of political commentary, social com. Yes. Uh, yes. That is, I would like to know more, Tim. Oh, would you? Yes, <laughs> I'll buy that for a dollar, Mister Verhoeven. Um, Peter uh, Verhoeven's like probably my favorite director of after John Carpenter because his run of like RoboCop, Total Recall, Starship Troopers are just brilliant. They're brilliant action movies, but they're also great, like satires and and commentaries on. American capitalism and American military intervention there. He's such a great writer when it comes to adding that layer. So light brigade takes that. It takes the element of like a war, uh, a, a hard sci-fi military sci-fi book, and then adds this time travel layer with the idea that spoiler alert, corporations run the world, which they do. I seem to and, have read that idea taken to another level since somebody's. Oh, sorry. Yes, exactly. 
Uh, I did have that idea already before I read Cameron. So, so I'm not going to say I stole that from, from Cameron, but, I, and she's a hundred times the writer that I am. So I, you know, even if I did steal it, I would, I would be honest, but I love that book. Cause it's gritty. It's gory. It's bloody. It has a great setup. And when it nails the ending, it is so much fun to go back and be like, Oh, what? Just, what? And then you have to like start over. I'm a big fan of the movie Primer. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I Shane, love that movie. Shane Carruth. You can't understand it from one watch. No, nope. like I watched it the first time and I was like, okay, I got to really rewind. Like I had to immediately rewind and check stuff mm-hmm. out. And I'm pretty sure that even having seen it a dozen times, there's stuff that I don't really get. Yep. Yep. So, so Light Brigade is, is sort of structured the same way in terms of, it's not just a matter of a linear going back and forth, but there's all these intermediate jumps. And sometimes you're not going back to the same point. And it's like, it becomes very confusing in the moment. But once you reveal the big picture, you go, oh, and there's this great like sense of now I've got it and it clicks. And um, I have played around with that in like short stories and drafts, but I've never been able to nail that level of complexity because I've seen her her spreadsheet that she used in this diagram. And she actually worked with like an astrophysicist to get this correct of like trying to, to build a timeline that made sense where you're constantly crisscrossing. And the, this event here that's in the, in the future is going to then impact something that happens in the past. And then the past is going to influence a future future. And you're just like, I don't know how your brain comes up with that. Like that's, I'm very linear thinking in in a lot of ways. So like Primer is was one of my all-time favorite movies because of that, because it's such a rewatchable film. And it was inspirational too. I love, I came out of in terms of movies, you know, the 90s with like Kevin Smith and um uh Quentin Tarantino and and you know, people making low-budget films. And Shane Kruth is in that same, you know group because he made that all his own i mean that's he made it he shot it he he's in it he made the, he did the music he edited it like it, it was a very low budget movie but it doesn't feel low budget like no it just feels like a good indie film and it's a time travel movie with basically no special effects which is none and it's because fantastic completely plot driven which means you have to pay attention. You know what? I, I don't know that the modern, the the generation after us could handle a movie like that. You can't no. be on your phone and watch Primer and have any hope to know what's happening at any point. No. And I completely respect the other end of it. Like I, I mentioned, like Mad Max Fury Road is one of my favorite films. And that is pure spectacle, massive scale, incredible stunts. And it's it's a complete 180 from from Primer. But I love that as well. And a lot of in terms of influences, I would say movies are just as influential because I grew up, I've, I've said this before, like three of my favorite characters when I was growing up were like Ellen Ripley from the Aliens franchise, um, Sarah Connor from the Terminator franchise, and and Princess Leia. Like Strong, I, I, independent women, I'm, yes. I'm getting a feeling. That reminds and, me of a certain character. And people thrust into situations that they are not necessarily prepared for, but that they they are able to rise to the level. Like I could never relate in the eighties to people like Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger and Chuck Norris, because they seemed like more than human, you know, 
I can't walk around like Jesse Ventura holding a Gatling gun in Predator because that's just simply inhu- like you, it's it's crazy. Carry a minigun around. But I could appreciate a character who's just working a nine to five job like Sarah Connor and is being hunted by a sadistic, uh, you know, killing machine and is doing everything in her power to stay alive. Um, and that's when it felt like, you know, those movies were uh, accessible to me being 13, 14, 15 years old. I shouldn't have been seeing them, but they left a heavy mark on my psyche along with John Carpenter films and, and, you know, obviously you still get sucked into like how cool Han Solo is or how cool Snake Plissken is from Escape from New York and, the, and you know, guys who like smoke a cigarette and flick it. And, you know, that's there's a level of badassery to that that I appreciate. But even if you think about Die Hard, I mean, Bruce Willis is just an average guy who gets thrust into an insane situation. I much more relate to that. So that's when I was writing. I was thinking about like, I just want normal people put into extraordinary cir- circumstances and force them to react um, in a way that seems real based on what I've seen in pop culture over the last 30, 40 years. Um, so I'm trying to think, of, you know, in terms of influence, it's weird because I had a, <laughs> I had a very pretentious friend in college when I, he was, he was in like a progressive rock band. I was like, well, what do you, what, what are your influences? And he goes, uh, not really music. I'm really into art. And I was like, dude, come on. Like, you're not going <laughs> to, you, you you're not teaching a bicycle to ride a bike here, bud. Like you, <laughs> you picked up the guitar for a reason. Yeah. You, well, know, you know what I mean? You didn't pick up a paintbrush. You picked up a guitar. And so, music is art. Yeah, exactly. But he was talking, I was, I'm influenced by poetry and paintings and, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, but you play guitar. You didn't pick those things up. So like, while I am, you know, there's books that are hugely influential, you know, there's obviously movies um tv shows that kind of stuff there's i mean music is influential in in terms of writing i listened to the tron legacy soundtrack a ton when i was writing even though it's not a sci-fi movie in that way but it's just like i it has the intensity and i would pick particular songs and i would loop them when i was writing like a certain scene because that's the vibe i wanted for the scene like this scene's gonna be slightly creepy like there's a scene in the red sky where it's in the um it's at the airport and uh one of the characters is getting freaked out because they're alone there's no power and they're trying to like figure out like there's like a noise and a door opens but they they thought it was shut and they go outside and then and it's i wanted it to be creepy so i was listening to like very minimalistic like john carpenter halloween music like it's supposed to be a, a horror scene almost in in a, like a scary haunted house type scene even though that's not what the book is but i just wanted the vibe to be that for that experience uh when i was writing it so i could get into the right mindset so sometimes that is is the influence more so than like a bigger picture uh, entire story or or whatnot so those i guess that's a couple of them <laughs> how do you come to how do you decide which characters survive and which don't? It's it's a it's a thing where it's what the story what it feels right for the story. I definitely killed more characters in the second book oh, than the you, first one. You did I? I did some slaughtering <laughs> in the second, and I wanted it to be like there's a character who's 
in the duration of both books, who dies, and I'm not going to use names because I don't want if somebody ends up reading it, I don't want to spoil it. But I didn't want him to get a, a like this glorious, kick-ass death. I just now, want it to be like now I know who boom. it is. You know what I mean? I just want to boom, you're dead. Because that's what would happen in real life. Yeah. Like you, you don't get these moments where you're like at the end of uh, at the end of Santa Sons of Anarchy, where uh, you get to throw up the Jesus pose and ride into the sunset and then smack into the front end of a semi and and have, have this glorious death. Like I wanted there to be like shock and like wait a minute, did that guy just die? Like yeah, because that's what happens you, when you're in the middle of a firefight. Sometimes people just die and drop dead. That happens in um. I just rewatched Heat because I love that film. And there's a scene in the bank robbery when when they're all closed or closing in on the on the bank robbery. And the actor who played Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs, I don't know, remember his name, but he's one of El Pacino's team. And he gets shot and he's dead. And he's a he has a talking, you know, he's a full character in that movie. There's scenes with him interacting with family and like he's he's a he's a regular guy. You know, he's not like a bit part in that movie and one bullet and he's gone. And it's so fast. And I think it's like referenced for like five seconds. And then it's not even mentioned right again in the movie because so everything is happening and you don't have time to be like, I lost my brother. You know, like, I you know what I mean. Like there's no, when you're in the moment of that, you don't get the opportunity to reflect and have a, a cathartic scene of loss. You just got to keep moving. It reminds me of what James S.A. Corey did in The Expanse, the first book. I'm assuming that because that's a brilliant piece of world building and science fiction that you've read all those. I have read the first three. I oh, have you all the to, books. You need to finish the man. But I kind of do them the one and then I do something else and then I go back and do, you know, like that. So, right, well, this is a book one thing so we can talk about it without. Yes. Um, even though it's been out long enough that it shouldn't spoil anyone. But there should be no spoilers. Have happen. you also seen the TV show? Oh, I watched the TV show before, and then All, when I found out it was a book okay. series, I started the books. Well, that's I did the same. So I know thing. the differences and okay, on all cool. that kind of thing. I did the same thing, but I read all of the books that were out between season three and four of the TV show. Like oh, I wow. watched the first three seasons and then consumed all of the books because there was a delay when they switched distributors, right? Um, yes. So, like, yeah. So I was like, I went from being behind to getting, you know, obviously the bigger story because the books are there's more there, but similar to like a character that you didn't expect to not be there anymore and he's just gone, but there's no dwelling on it because they're in it. That was, yes. And especially when you see it on the TV show and it's somebody you recognize, like in the case you just quoted from heat, mm -hmm. as far as you recognize the actor too. Right. Right. And then all of a sudden, Oh, well that's, <laughs> there goes that character. Right. And I feel like, uh, I have been eternally, set up for that because of executive decisions starring Kurt Russell and uh, a bunch of big actors. And, and Steven Seagal is, is credited as being one of the stars of that movie. And spoiler alert, he dies in the first 10 minutes. I didn't see that one, but now I know. Okay. It, it's great because you're like, oh, this is a Steven Seagal movie. No, it's not because he's dead. <laughs> he doesn't get to do any Kung Fu or karate or anything on anybody because, uh, yeah. And you're like, holy shit, they just killed one of the, one of the main actors. And I love that because you it's so unexpected a, and you're like, oh, there are no rules now. Nice paycheck for that, I bet. Exactly. You can put your name up top of the bill and you get, you get more money, right? Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing that Game of Thrones did. I mean, killing off Ned Stark, you know, right away. People are like, you're not going to kill him off. If they haven't read the books, they're going to be like, they haven't, they haven't 
they're not going to kill him. Right? Oh, okay. Well, I guess nobody's safe. And I like the idea that nobody's safe versus this is the trio or the, the, the group that you're just going to follow for a bunch of books and stories. Um, I actually had a much bloodier uh, outline. And I was like, I need to dial this back because it, especially if I kill this one character, everybody's going to hate me because everybody says I, I, they're badass. I'll say Tessa, who's one of the, I, I was, there was a moment, there was like a five minute moment where I was like brainstorming and I was like, I wonder if I could kill Tessa like this. And my wife was like, if you kill her, <laughs> we're going to have serious problems. And I was like, I know, but I got to kill somebody. <laughs> Not everybody can make it through all these things. Like, I just don't believe it. I'm sorry. Like the group's got to evolve. So then I started thinking about who else I could do away with. But it's got to make sense for the, the story, too. I mean, I scrapped a lot of what I was thinking of at, at the beginning because I just didn't. It just wasn't working. And like I said, I, I went through four different iterations of starting the book. And I knew that there was. I knew that there had to be some body count, but it was just taking, it was just a taking a moment of figuring it out. And I don't necessarily, and I don't know how all writers work, but I know my beginning, I know my end. I want to hit some beats in between, but I don't have everything beat out on a sheet. Like I go, I need, I, it's more like, I want to go here, here, and here with this. I want this character to experience this. I want this character to, to feel this, experience this. They want this. I, they're they're seeking this you know i want the characters to be active and not just reactionary but proactive um i love twists and i love i love the audience having a nugget of information that the characters don't but then also then twisting it and and being like oh you thought you had all the information but there was one thing i left out and that's this that to me is fun cuz you know you want to be surprised. It shouldn't go. It shouldn't go the way you're expecting it to go all the it time, or else you're going to be bored. So I, I'm going to assume that you've read Red Shirts. Actually, I've read Red Shirts. It's one of the few I haven't read. I know. Wow. Of it. I've okay, read all you... of the. I've read the like Interdependency. I've read all but one of the Old Man's War books. I just haven't read the last one, um, but it's in my it's in my giant TBR pile over here. You need to read Red Shirts like yesterday. I'm serious. Okay. Especially since you're a writer, and now I don't want to spoil it for you, but there's a very meta point about how writers treat their characters mm -hmm. and who, you know, obviously the premise is based on Star Trek, how the red shirts would get killed off. So that's, there's exactly. no secret there, but it, there, it, he uses kind of that as kind of a discussion. So somebody was obviously writing those Star Trek episodes and discarding these characters willy nilly. <laughs> but right. what if that meant something to those characters? And that's where he goes with it. Um, and I don't write books, but I feel like if I did, red shirts would make me think about the way I wrote. <laughs> I'm sure. Is, yeah. Which is, uh, he, that's why I would like you to read it, and then we should talk about it because I think that's such Definitely. a great book. And it's a really fast read. It's you know how his style is. It's oh yeah, you'll laugh your way through it. It's it's hilarious. I have three more questions, and then I'll let you get on to your day because you're a busy fella. And <laughs> these are the two that I ask every guest. These next ones. What's the first song that you can remember hearing in your life? If you go back as far as you can remember to your youth. Oh boy. 
if well so my parents are boomers they grew up with the beatles strangely we had no beatles records in our house the only thing we had i don't know why were billy joel cassettes and i've joked around with jay from the podcast that for some reason every house in the midwest and northeast in the 1980s had at least one billy joel cassette in there it was like you had to have scenes from italian restaurant or uh or uh you know uh piano man or something like like there was always a billy jo- so it would probably be billy joel's like piano man is probably the first thing i don't I think we hearing. had any i think we're that house that didn't have any okay that's entirely possible the other thing is that is uh i grew up my my both sides of my family are italian um so there was always crooners on at my my grandparents house um, my grandfather had a lot of records, Perry Cuomo, Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis, Dean, uh, you know, all those guys. And there, that was always playing. We would go over every Sunday, we would go over for Sunday dinner and it would be like, you know, 20, 30 people from all sides of the, you know, the, my cousins and uncles and aunts and stuff like that. So there was always like that playing. So that's sort of ing- like, even when I make dinner now, I throw on like Italian music, even, even if I'm not making Italian food. It's just like cooking music to me. No, so that's it would cool. probably probably be like something like that. But not, <laughs> like Perry Cuomo doesn't seem as cool as like, oh, it was Sinatra. No, it was probably Perry Cuomo. What did your childhood smell like? Oh, you know what? I, I, this comes back to me every once in a while because I don't smell it that often is the smell of uh, wood burning outside you know that smell when it's like somebody chopped out chopped some wood threw it in a whatever outside and you know you make a fire i was i was in boy scouts my grandfather had a like a basically a mobile home but it was in a it was in a by a park a, a state park in new york where you could park your mobile home and um, you could fish and there were trails to walk and stuff like that. And every night would end with like a fire, people sitting around the fire. So that like smell as soon as I can smell it and it like immediately transports me back to being a kid and all that stuff we used to do outside that um, people don't do anymore. <laughs> I'm sure people do, but I, I, I don't see it as much anymore. So yeah, that, that fresh burning wood smell is fantastic. And my awesome. wife is allergic to smoke, so we never do. Ah, <laughs> yeah, that's a shame, especially since what smoke does for meats. Oh yeah, well she's vegetarian too. Oh well then. So we have a, we have a, a bit of a, a dividing line on a lot of stuff, but it doesn't get in the way of my um, meat or burning things. That sounds like I'm an arsonist, <laughs> but I'm not. It, it does, and I'm sure that the FBI will list that. They've already got my search history. <laughs> they so. really, they really definitely do. Um, <laughs> what do you want listeners to take away, Eric? Listeners, what do you want readers of your two books? Because we want people to go read your books. Uh, what What are you hoping they take away from from your books? Oh, uh, that they have a, a an enjoyable, entertaining experience. That the best thing that can happen is is they say, all right, well, when's the next book coming out? You know, that's, that's the goal. And my answer to that is when I have an idea 
for the next one. I won't, I won't uh, George R. R. Martin this and, and make you wait 15 years or whatever it is, or some of the other authors who, who put in giant gaps between, between books. But um, I think that, I mean, that's the best possible thing anybody can say is cool. When's the next one coming out? Because then they got it and they're invested in the characters and that's all you can really ask for. So, you know, there you go. That was my reaction. I finished it and I was like, well, <laughs> I, I need to know what happens now. This is, this is very annoying. I, I want to know what happens. <laughs> I, I, I get that. I have to clean the palette though. Like I was so in the woods on that one for a while that I have, I've been just working on other stuff just so my brain can like reset. Yeah. A lot of authors will say like after they finish, you know, after you're done writing it, then you got to edit it and you go through all those sorts of things and rewrites that your brain just turns into mush for like a couple months afterwards i don't know how certain people write one after another after another after another like stephen king is like i don't know what he does that he's can put out multiple books a year and some of these other authors that's just nuts to me i mean bob i know pollard i'm not at of, that level bob pollard of book writing yeah, exactly <laughs> exactly i mean not everyone's a, a hit but they're like they're still good I forgot to mention Stephen King, but The Stand was a huge influence on me as a kid. I read that. I probably read that way too young. It was one of those things where I was at the grocery store and I picked up The Stand and I was like, this, this is massive. I'm going to do this. And it took me like a year to read that, but I'm glad I did because that was, a, that was a, a big turning point. Like That was when I felt like I was a, a big person reading a book. Like I wasn't a kid reading like The Catcher in the Rye and, and you know whatever kids books there are in school that you're forced to read how old were like, you i was probably let's see i was riding my bike to the grocery store by myself at that point so i was probably like 13 mm, okay. 14 years old um and i was a student so like the fact that i picked up a book on my own probably made my parents like happy because i was like a c student which my wife always just like relentlessly makes fun of me she's like <laughs> Anytime I'll give her a fact, she goes, are you sure about that, C student? <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. Took you six years to finish college, you know. I'm like, yeah, I know. Just relax. So where, where do we find people if they want to get in touch with you or find you on social media or go pick up your books? Where do we, where do we send people? Well, the books are easily available at Amazon, the giant Megla Corporation, um, both in paperback and Kindle copies. You can also read, listen to the audiobook of the black sky uh friend eric grubbs who's been on dig me out podcast in the past and is a writer himself uh he did the audiobook for that um you can go to uh, my website which is just uh .com. i'm on the facebook there's an author page with first name last name and then i'm on instagram i have a twitter account but i don't use it uh, I'm on the TikTok. I make stupid videos about music usually because uh, I'm a music nerd. That's mostly what I I try to stick to that. If I do, if I veer off of that, I feel like I'm getting away from my lane. So I'm like, I'm just going to talk about music and maybe some pop culture stuff. And that's about it. Um, and uh, I think that's, that's about it. I don't, I hope I'm not anywhere else. God, that's enough. <laughs> well, uh, thanks again for taking the time. Uh, we, we know we talked earlier about, the 40 hour a week job you're an author you do a podcast we you, even cover gardening we covered no we haven't gotten to a gardening or baking but i figure yes. 
when you release the next book, I'll have you back. We'll talk about the nude book and then we'll dive into gardening and baking. And yeah. we'll probably also spend the first hour of that on music because I feel like that is an unexhaustible source of discussion oh, yeah. content for people like us. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, it just so happens that I, I, you know, have an outlet for that. <laughs> yeah. It's I, I have one now. I didn't used to, but uh, right. unless, you know, I'm out of the show and I run into musicians in the community and we talk about records for a half hour before the show starts, but right. You know, that's look, I'm always going to want to talk about music with someone yes. who's as passionate about it as me. And that is you. So <laughs> awesome. Well, I very much appreciate you having me on. Uh, I don't do a lot of these, not out of like, I don't like them, but like they just don't come up that often. So it's always fun to get to talk to fellow podcasters, music nerds, book, book lovers, and that kind of stuff. Cause you know, I like talking to people who share passions. So that's fun. Yeah, it was great. Everybody go, go read Tim's books. Thank you, sir. Once again, my thanks to Tim Manichi for joining me. His podcast is called Dig Me Out Podcast. Google that if you like 90s music at all. And especially if you like 90s rock and roll, this podcast is for you. Also, yeah, why not pick up his books and give them a read? I think they're good. I think you might think they're good as well. And again, thank you, dear listener, once more for being here with me on the You Could Be My Airbus podcast. Next week, more conversations. Have a lovely weekend. <laughs>